Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Kimberly Whitler, the Frank M. Sam Sr. Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. Whitler spent nearly 20 years in general management, strategy, and marketing roles within the consumer packaging goods and retailing industries, managing global, U.S., and Eastern European-based businesses. She spent most of her career at Procter & Gamble and subsequently served as the general manager of the breakfast division for Aurora Foods, the CMO of David's Bridal, and as an officer of PetSmart. She's the author of Positioning for Advantage, Techniques and Strategies to Grow Brand Value, which was named the best strategy book, and is the co-author of the book, Athlete Brands, How to Benefit from Your Name, Image, and Likeness. In this podcast, Professor Whitler will talk with us about the impact of sociopolitical activism and its impacts on brands and companies. So thank you, Professor, for speaking with me today. I'm so glad to be here with you, Susan, to talk about such an important and frankly hot topic. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. So first, can you provide some background? You know, what is sociopolitical activism and why are we seeing more of this today? Yeah, no, that's that's such an important question, because if you go back 20, 30 years ago, we just did not see uh, see issues like Coke getting embroiled in the Georgia voting reform bill, Nike, Colin Kaepernick, social injustice, kneeling for the flag, Disney, um, and most recently we saw Bud Light. Uh, So we're seeing more and more of this. Uh, Here's what I'd like to do. I want to start by kind of anchoring this conversation. Um, And here's what I tell my students on day one when they walk into a marketing class. When you walk in here, you're a scientist and you are learning to become a chief marketing officer. And what that means is that your perspective is your personal perspective is largely irrelevant because you serve and advocate for all consumers. And it's impossible for me as with my consumer hat on to represent all consumers. And therefore, what we learn to do is to start um, understanding what the role is of a CMO. So when I look at this issue, I'm purely looking at it through the lens of a CEO and a CMO. And what is the CEO responsible for? They literally have fiduciary responsibility for the firm. They are hired to protect and strengthen the firm and brand. That is their job. That's what they're hired to do. The CMO is hired to strengthen the business and brand primarily through deeply understanding all consumers and advocating for them and bringing their voice into the company. And so it's through that lens that we're going to talk about this topic today. All right. Um, All right. So with that, and that's important because if, if we were talking as Kim Whitler, I have plenty of political views on different issues. But when you put on the lens of CEO and CMO, you are responsible for millions of lives, if you're Disney or Coke, around the globe, uh, shareholders, consumers, employees, suppliers, agencies, augmented staff. You have this enormous ecosystem that's counting on you 
to do the best for the firm. And that's a very different role that we have to look at uh, when considering this issue. All right. So that's, I wanted to say that because that's important because we need to right now think, I'm thinking about that issue through that lens. So when we think about sociopolitical activism, it's really when a firm publicly demonstrates their support or opposition to a partisan sociopolitical issue. Now, this can be related to social issues such as LGBTQ plus or gender or race. It can also be related to political issues such as Koch's involvement in the Georgia Voting Reform Bill or Disney's involvement in the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill or the Don't Say Gay Bill, depending on what side of the political aisle you stand on. These are examples of the type of issues that companies can engage in. Um, I think you asked something about why are we seeing more of this? Mm -hmm. I was talking to uh, an, an executive, a CEO from a large company, and he said, Kim, you don't understand today, I have to take a stand. And I, and I thought, where is this coming from? If you go do a Google search, you'll see media article after media article after media article and saying that companies must stand up, that they basically must pick sides. And supporting those headlines are managerial research search that I think is deeply flawed. I think it's not um, complete in its research and in, 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 in the way in which it's conducted. And so it's actually misleading CEOs and CMOs. But much of this research says that when consumers are asked, they identify that they want companies to pick a side. There's also, though, another study that said that comp- that consumers don't want companies to pick a side other than their own. So in other words, what consumers really want is for companies to agree with them. And as you can imagine, this becomes a math problem when you have a consumer base, an employee base, an investor base, a supplier base, a globe a global business base that doesn't understand American politics, when you have that and you all of a sudden start picking a side on very divisive issues, it can become challenging. So let me just give you a couple of headlines that highlight this. Um, a few years ago, coming out of Davos, which is the World Economic Forum annual meeting, this is a very big, important meeting where top CEOs go to, there was a headline that said, at Davos, the magic, the message to and from CEOs is clear. Let's take a stand, right? So coming out of the leading, arguably the leading uh, event where CEOs attend, they were all being told and pressured, oftentimes through the media and through managerial research to take a stand. So uh, many of them have felt like, I think, in conversations, that they, they, they can't find a way to navigate this. They don't want to really engage in it because they recognize it's damaging brands, it's, it's damaging companies and businesses, but they're trying to figure out how to navigate this very thorny issue. Thank you so much for that context. I think that's really important. And um, so with the next question, you, you spoke about this a little bit, but but what data you know is emerging about its impact on companies when they take these stands and 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 do these kinds of uh, promotions? Yeah, you know that's a really good question because the academic research it, it's it's it oftentimes doesn't find its way to the mainstream press, and so you're not seeing it. And yet the academic research is far more rigorous 
and is far more complete in giving us insight into this issue. And a lot of it is deeply contradicting what you're seeing in the managerial press. The managerial press says, oh, con consumers want you to take a stand. Sure, I, you know, consumers want companies to take a stand on abortion, all right? But CEOs recognize that that is deeply problematic. And so the academic research is looking at the consequence of when companies take a stand. And we now, again, academic research takes time to wind through the system. It has to go through an extensive peer review process. And so we're just now starting to get kind of a spate of, of, of studies come in, but we're starting to see a bit of, of a convergence, early convergence. We have a number of papers that have studied that are across different domains like management and marketing that study different uh, stakeholder consequences. They look at some look at employees, some look at consumers, some look at investors. And yet the papers are coming out with the same comments and the same the same conclusions are that there is a negative asymmetric effect. What does that mean? It means that those people, consumers, employees or investors who are in support of the company's position are neutral to slightly more positively affected, right? So their behavior will be the same or it will be slightly more positive. Those who are against what the CEO or against the position that the company's taking um, are deeply and negatively impacted. So let me give you a live example of what I mean by this, all right? So we now have multiple years of, 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 of Nike and uh, the Colin Kaepernick campaign. And I want to disentangle, there's two things that are conflating that issue. One is standing up for social injustice, which both sides of the aisle agree social injustice is bad. What was polarizing is kneeling for the flag. Uh, liberals see that as American, patriotic, a good thing to do, you know, to stand up or really to kneel and to make a stand. Conservatives see it absolutely the opposite, that this is unpatriotic, this is un-American, it's deeply disrespectful to the people who fought and died for our country. Two different views. That, so said differently, had Nike chosen a different Serena Williams, if they chosen Serena Williams, I do not believe they would have received the same backlash. So I want to separate out those two issues. So here's what happened. Three years after Colin Kaepernick, the campaign, um, this is, by the way, BAV data. BAV is a company out of Europe, and they track and measure brand image and brand usage across top brands over time. And so what's really nice about their data is that I can get not just usage, but I can also understand how consumers feel about the brand. And we can look at it by political ideology. So we can start understanding what's going on. If you look at Nike usage uh, three years after that, um, usage among uh, liberals is up 2%. Usage among conservatives is down 27%. That's an example of that asymmetric effect. Um, if you look at a question, and this is fascinating, if you look at a question, Nike is a brand that cares about its customers. And we look at that among liberals, or I'm sorry, among Democrats and among Republicans. Democrats, uh, the, the rating increased by 33% among Democrats, and it decreased by 54% among Republicans. So see, what happens is when a company stands up on a position, 
it essentially is changing the positioning of the firm, right? So Pepsi, Coke, Disney, Nike, Under Armour, J&J, Procter & Gamble, Gillette, Tide, all of these brands are considered to be generally for liberals and for conservatives. But when they stand up on a political issue, socio-political issue that is divided by politics, what happens is they reposition them for themselves in the minds of consumers to this is no longer a brand for people like me if you're on the other side. When I now say that this is no longer a brand for people like me, I'm much less likely to want to buy from it. I may be more less likely to want to work for it. I may be less likely to want to invest in it because they're saying we're now a political brand. We used to not be. And that's a shift in the core positioning of the company. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. And these are just complex times, right? So so I just have a lot of uh, empathy for people uh, to try and make these decisions. It's complex times for everybody. So thank you for that information. So they're starting, as you're saying, they're starting to become some academic data of the negative impacts of these types of things. So why are companies doing this? Yeah, so what's interesting to me, I've had kind of a front row seat in being able to observe executive teams working through this problem. And let me explain. So I've written a case on the Coke Georgia, Georgia voting reform bill um, and run the case a number of times with executives. I've also written the case on the Disney parental rights and education don't say gay bill uh, and have run that case a number of times. And I'm just finishing up the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light case. Um, and so what happens is, is executive groups come in and I start off, I say, you're the CEO. What would you do? You're faced with this situation. I'm putting them in the CEO seat. What would you do? And there's four positions that they can take. They can either align with a liberal perspective. They can align with a conservative perspective. That's not how I tell them. I say, like, if you're the CEO of Disney, you can... Uh, reject the bill. That's the liberal perspective. You can support the bill. That's the conservative perspective. You can make, you can say no comment, or you can make some kind of general, try unifying sort of comment. Like, you know, we support all parents. We call on our elected leaders to come together to create, you know, a space for all families of all shapes and sizes to have, to be educated. Um, obviously a terrible statement, but you get my point that it's unifying. It's more universal, unifying. It's less picking a side. And so then we work through the case. And I've observed what I find very fascinating, a couple of patterns that I thinking think are leading to blind spots when executives work on this issue. The, the first pattern that I'm observing is that there's a lopsided discussion and that in, 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 across hundreds of executives, not one person has ever verbally advocated for the conservative view, even though there's evidence in the case that you could. Consumers tend to be more supportive on the Disney case uh, for parental rights. If you look at the different pieces of, of the actual bill, um, in general, there's a slight favorable leaning among consumers to supporting the bill. And so if you're going to take a stand, you can make the argument, well, that based on the consumer sentiment, if we're going to take a stand, let's align with the majority of consumers. 
But yet nobody's ever advocated for a conservative view, which then made me say, what's going on? Are, are people not allowed to verbally advocate in a decision-making context for the conservative view? And I found some, some research done by the Cato Institute. It's hard, I haven't seen much of this, but I found some research by the Cato Institute, which indicates that conservatives, and especially the more uh, educated they are, are self-censoring at work. And so that shouldn't matter when we're discussing an issue you should not be advocating for your own point of view as an executive. You should be able to advocate for the liberal perspective, the conservative perspective, the independent perspective. And so what I think what I think is happening in many of these discussions is that people are advocating for their own point of view. And then the conservatives are being quiet. And so I have ways and mechanisms in class to get around this. I force them to, per, to, to perspective, to take perspective of different people. I force them to advocate for the liberal view, and then I force them to spend the same amount of time advocating for the conservative view to understand all sides before you make a decision. But one blind spot is that folks are not necessarily verbally advocating for all sides. That must be overcome in decision making when you're considering political issues. You need to get vocal advocacy. Um, the second thing is that these executive groups are often defining right incorrectly. And so let me read to you a quote by Iger. And this is fascinating to me. This was in the midst of the Disney um, issue. He said, he said in a CNN interview, to me, it wasn't about politics. It is about what is right and what is wrong. I just think you have to do what is right and not worry about the potential backlash to it. What is he saying? He's defining right and wrong from his own personal perspective. He is actually saying that doing the right thing for the company is not his objective, right? It's okay to harm the company as long as I do the right thing. And so I actually, in the middle of these conversations, I go, okay, we've unpacked it. We've looked at it from all sides. What is the right thing to do? And that, that is, 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 is the moment where I then challenge them to say, what is the definition of right? What are you hired to do? What is your job? Is right your perspective, your personal perspective, or is right doing what the company has paid you to, you know, has paid you to do? And if you're CEO, what does that mean? If you're CMO, what does that mean? And so that is a very meaty conversation because this is tough, mm -hmm. right? This is tough because people want to advocate and promote and get the company to do what they personally think is right. And you can imagine what would happen in a company if everybody was promoting their own personal point of view and not working in concert toward what's good for the company. Yeah. So, so, so that, so those are a couple of the issues. There's a number that I've observed, but I find both of those very interesting. One that that teams today are having a difficult time getting fair and balanced perspective uh, from both political parties, so that they can make more educated and reasoned decisions. And the second thing is that they're walking into these discussions not having an aligned view of what the goal and objective is. The goal and objective is to protect and strengthen the company and brand and business. That's what we're trying to figure out. So what path of, 
what path is going to help us do that. That's great. I can see how valuable those type of case studies will be for your students um, as they move forward and have to make those decisions. You know, when they're sitting in that seat, uh, they can call back upon what they were learning in your class. So that's great. You know, and finally, you know, what are your thoughts uh, for brands and companies on how to best manage uh, these types of things and mitigate, you know, the pushback? So one thing that I that I suggest when I talk with CEOs is treat this like cybersecurity. Mm. All right. Almost assume it's going to happen. You don't wait until the crisis occurs. You have to get ahead of the crisis. So these companies, surprisingly to me, they're not managing through it very well. And again, they have all the world's resources at their disposal. These are not small companies. And yet, you know, they make statements that you think that they would have tested and had a sense as to how the reaction would be and know what was going to happen before they're making them. So the first thing is get ahead of it, put a team together. The the team is critical. You must have political balance. Most importantly, I want political balance and vocal advocacy. So I I would steer away from individuals who are activists, And I would try to get individuals on this team who are scientists, who can look at the data, who deeply want to understand the consumer, the employees, the stakeholders, and who can step back and and make reasoned decisions and um, are open-minded and tolerant and inclusive of points of view that they may not personally agree with. So it's critical that you get the right folks on the team. If you need to, go hire a liberal and conservative strategist, you know, who can articulate and advocate from from that side, but you need scientists on the team who are able to look and understand and how to try to create a, a, a path that respects and includes um, all of their consumers and employees. Uh, so I would assemble that team. And then there's a number of things that the team can do. I would start with research. I start by just saying, look, Let's understand our consumer base, not what somebody else is publishing. How do our consumers feel about this? How do our consumers think about us engaging in this? How do our employees feel about this? And you have to design this research better than the current managerial research. So you need somebody who's adept at getting to insight that will help you unlock the right path. And then if it were me, I would test statements. I would learn through testing ideas and say, you know, recently, uh, I mean, I, let me go back in time, Roe v. Wade, a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, that decision came out. You could test different statements and see what the reaction is. What this does is it will empower the leaders of the company to come up with a point of view and to educate the employee base on why they're taking the position they are. And so I'll highlight a couple companies, uh, Netflix and Spotify, both of them got in trouble. They, they you know, the media came after them uh, because of content that they had on their platforms. And both of those companies came out and publicly said that they serve a number of different types of consumers. Not everybody will love all the content, but they are a big platform with a a broad variety of consumers and they're there to meet all the needs. And what they then did is on their career page. So one of the things I would advocate is the senior leaders 
need to help young employees understand at the employment stage, at the interview stage, what the company's beliefs are about this type of activism. And both Netflix and Spotify have statements on their career page and during their interviewing process that essentially suggests that if you're not comfortable working on content that you don't personally like, this company might not be the right company for you. So they're therefore signaling and setting the stage for this is not the company that, you know, if you want to go try to change the company to comport with your view of the world, you know, this is this is probably not the best company for you. Go find a company where your personal values completely align with the company's. And so those are things that companies can do to try to signal and set the stage for a point of view that the company has on how they view these socio-political activism issues. Great. So thank you so much, Professor Whitler, for sharing this information, uh, you know, on your work and your research. Um, this is a complex issue. There's a lot of things. So I really appreciate you giving us this context. And um, our alumni are in sitting in different seats uh, and working in different uh, ways. And so I'm sure that a lot of people will find a lot of pieces here uh, that will be of value of interest to them. So thank you so much for sharing all this, uh, your knowledge and wisdom and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends, and families. Thanks so much, Susan. Great. Thank you. And thank you for listening uh, for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming recordings and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcasts on Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thank you again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs. 